das Urdugsaion-Bild. Soon it will be you who comes begging to me. The soul of Christine Brown, we will feast upon it. Welcome to Now Playing's bonus review of Sam Raimi's Drag Me to Hell. A dark spirit has come upon you. What do you mean? Perhaps someone has cursed you. Hosted by Arnie. You are cocky and sexy <laughs> and unbelievable. Stuart. You know, Stu's someone who's not afraid to make the tough decisions. And Jacob. Well, your mother must be very proud of you. This podcast will contain detailed plot spoilers and mild language. Everything we're doing is for your own good. Please. Listener discretion is advised. Tonight, my chance will come. But to summon it, I will need your help. Can you be strong? Today we're discussing Drag Me to Hell, starring Alison Lohman, Justin Long, Lorna Raver, David Paymer, and directed by Sam Raimi. I'm Arnie, co-host of Now Playing, and I'm gonna get some. Stuart in L.A. And this is your dirty pork queen, Jacob. <laughs> Surprise! We did it! I don't think that anyone knew. I think you kind of dropped some teases on Facebook and the forums with your never-say-never refusal to lie. I think people suspected that Drag Me to Hell was coming, but no one knew when. But yes, here we are discussing Drag Me to Hell because regular listeners have heard us mention on our past few shows that we are in the middle of our spring donation drive, where for $10, you not only get this summer's upcoming mega-zombie movie, the Brad Pitt-starring World War Z, but also the entire Evil Dead retrospective series, the reboot, is in theaters now, and we're going to be reviewing that next. But the original three Evil Dead films, of course, directed by Sam Raimi, starting off with horror, and I would say that the closest he's ever come to that vibe again is here in 2009's Drag Me to Hell. So, before we get to this movie, a reminder, if you'd like to hear our reviews of all the Evil Dead films, plus World War Z, head to nowplayingpodcast.com, scroll to the bottom, there's a little PayPal donate button, $10 or more, and you get those five films, $25 or more, and you also get the Mega Zombie Pack, where we're also doing the five Return of the Living Dead films, and 28 Days Later and 28 Weeks Later. Yeah, I think we're kind of giving you a freebie here because, in my estimation, Drag Me to Hell is Evil Dead. I mean, it doesn't say it in the title, but neither did Army of Darkness. And I'm telling you, it's even more clear coming back to it now. I've already seen this movie before. I saw the build-up to it. I was at Comic-Con 2008. Raimi was there. He showed clips from the movie. He drummed up interest. It wasn't a really big panel. It wasn't the one everyone was excited to see. But it was the one that got me the most excited of all the lineup that I saw that day. And I was looking forward to Raimi coming back to Evil Dead. Something we're not even getting this week. I mean, the Evil Dead reboot is only Raimi produced. This may be the last Evil Dead movie the man ever makes. As listeners of the Donation series know, I'm the Evil Dead fan. I'm a huge Raimi fan, as we talked about last year with the Spider-Man films. So, Drag Me to Hell, I wasn't there at Comic-Con. I didn't even go and see it in theaters because 
PG-13 horror films in my town usually bring a pretty loud cell phone using audience, so I did wait for video, but saw it the week it was released on video and excited to be talking about it so that I can argue with Stuart whether or not this is an Evil Dead film. And surprisingly, I have seen this one before. If you're listening to our Evil Dead retrospective, I'm the newbie there. I have only seen Army of Darkness. But this film, it did get a lot of buzz. I remember reading the critics. Raimi's returning back to his Evil Dead roots. I didn't know what that meant, but they were positive reviews. So I said, eh, I'll give this a try. It came out on DVD. I rented it. I watched it. I think I'm understanding it better now that I have seen those Evil Deads. Now I get what the references were for. But surprisingly enough, this is a horror film I have seen before. Right. So what version did you guys see? Because what's come out on DVD is known as an unrated. I saw this back when it was in theaters. This was the first time that I saw any additional footage. And it doesn't feel like it's that different. But I have seen both. And I guess I can speak a little to both. I'm guessing I've seen the unrated version then. Because I've only seen the DVD cut. I have the Blu-ray. It came with both versions. And I can tell you that the differences are strictly MPAA. R-rated horror. Harder to make money on. The differences are literally one second of film here, one second of film there. There's no extra plots or anything. Sometimes it's even just the color of the blood is slightly darker in PG-13. More spew. That's what I suspected, too. I thought there might be one scene that I could not remember seeing before, but almost everything else, yeah, that goes along with my memory then, was that it's an expansion of grossness, but not an expansion of the story by seeing the unrated cut. I guess we can still talk about which is better when we get to the end. But Arnie, do you want to give him the plot? Christine Brown's life is going well. She's in the prime spot for a promotion to assistant manager at her bank. She has a loving boyfriend, Clay, played by Apple guy Justin Long. And she's lost a lot of weight. But things take a turn when gypsy woman Sylvia Ganoush comes to beg Christine for a third extension on her unpaid mortgage. Wanting to impress her boss and cinch the promotion, Christine denies Ganoush the extension, and when Ganoush causes a scene, Christine calls for security. This is an insult Ganesh can't stand, so that night she attacks Christine in the bank's parking garage, stealing a button from Christine's coat and putting a curse on it. Now, whoever owns the button will be haunted by the Lamia, a powerful demon who will torment her for three days before dragging her to hell for eternity. Christine goes to apologize to the gypsy, but finds the old woman has died. Desperate, Christine visits local psychic Ram Joss, who suggests a sacrifice to appease the Lamia, so Christine guts her pet cat. But at dinner with Clay's parents, the Lamia attacks again, showing it is not appeased, and making Clay's parents think Christine is disturbed. Christine returns to Ram Joss, who tells of the medium, Sean Sandena, who had fought the Lamia decades earlier and lost as a young boy was dragged into hell. For $10,000, the psychic would battle the Lamia again, so Christine has to sell everything she has and finally gets the money from loving, though not believing, Clay. But Sandinia doesn't have the required power, and both she and her assistant are killed in the seance to summon the demon. With no other choice, Ram Joss tells Christine that she can be saved if she gifts the button to someone else, transferring the curse. Christine realizes she can't put this torment on anyone else, even her despicable co-worker Stuart, but she asks Ram Joss if she can give the button to a dead person. He says she can, so she goes and digs up the body of Ganesh and shoves the button, contained in an envelope, down the dead gypsy's throat. Relieved to be free of the curse, Christine prepares to go on vacation with Clay, who intends to propose to his girlfriend, but he also gives her an envelope. He has her button due to a mix-up when she dropped it in his car. 
The envelope Christine had at the grave contained one of Clay's collectible coins, not the accursed button. And, unable to gift the button to anyone else, the ground opens up and Christine is dragged into hell as Clay watches helpless and credits roll. So that is it. And I see what you mean, Stuart. There's a lot of Evil Dead influence here. It does make sense. This is a movie Raimi had written right after Army of Darkness came out. It had been sitting in the back of his mind for a hell of a long time, but it wasn't until after Spider-Man 3, I think, that he finally needed to kind of go back to his roots. That's what I suspected, was that the experience of making that third Spider-Man film was so unpleasant for Raimi as well as the audience. I think for everyone. I think everyone walked away from that with such bitter feelings that it was the way of cleansing the palate, going back to your roots, doing what you know you can do best, and having fun again after maybe not having fun on a big studio movie. Now, this is a universal project. These are the guys that funded Darkman and Army of Darkness, some of the earlier horror-y efforts. But it still feels as close to an indie movie as we'll probably ever get from Raimi again. And it was his first non-Spider-Man film of the 21st century, the last one he did. Also, somewhat of a throwback, but not quite. 2000's The Gift. Maybe someday we'll talk about it. But this is really the one that feels like he's truly just going back to his Detroit days, putting the camera on the plywood and running around with it. But yet, there are some holdovers. As we talked about in the Spider-Man series, he made a bitter enemy of Danny Elfman. Oz tells me they've smoothed things over, but the two swore they'd never work together again. Raimi's new composer best friend with whom he worked on Spider-Man 3 was Christopher Young, and that's what this movie opens with, Christopher Young doing his own kind of greatest hits here. I mean, Hellraiser, anyone? Yeah, no, he does good work in the genre, and it's kind of a seamless match. You know, you pointed out that Elfman walked away and somebody else stepped in, but it still feels Elfman-y enough to me. I mean, I think of this whole movie as sort of an extended episode of Tales from the Crypt, and that series was scored by Danny Elfman. It just puts me in the mood. It's the right vibe to get here. It's a horror movie, but with giggles and Raimi's sensibility. And we get it early and often, starting with the prologue here in 1969, Pasadena. Now, I think a key to having a great horror movie is having a great house. I love a sense of place in a horror movie. And when we open up and see this awesome palatial estate... I'm so excited. I just think it's awesome. It definitely sets a tone because it's the 60s. There's the woman medium trying to save a little boy whose soul is damned to hell. And she fails. The boy is dragged to hell here within the first couple minutes. And right there, I think Raimi's throwing down the gauntlet. Nobody is safe in this movie if I'm going to send this little boy to hell. PG-13 doesn't mean that everyone 13 and under is safe. And I think that's the right mood to set here. It not only sets up a beef between Sean Sedina, the medium, we know that this is a character that's going to come back, although it takes a little while to get back to this estate and to this character and the demon that she's going to fight. But you're right. It is definitely a way of saying, I can do whatever I want. Don't worry about the rating. As great as this house is, with Raimi throwing down this gauntlet saying, hey, if I want to kill a six-year-old, I'm going to kill a six-year-old or however old this kid is. I kind of reel back when this is a gypsy curse. Gypsies have a big resurgence on reality TV, gypsy sisters, and my big fat gypsy wedding. Like, we got people dragged into hell, and then we have a gypsy. I'm having a hard time reconciling the two. 
Well, what do we know about it? We know this little wand boy stole a necklace. That's what we're told, that he took this necklace. There's a fly buzzing around it. Now he's hearing things. Now he's feeling sick. They don't know that a demon's coming to get him. They only know that their son is not acting right for the past three days. It's a preface to, of course, the story we're going to get, and even a conclusion we're going to get. But I kind of like the idea that it establishes the roots of all of this with the gypsy characters. It makes a lot of sense when we see the character that's going to put the hex on our main character later. Maybe it's shorthand. Is that your problem? It's a stereotype? Yes, stereotype is the word I'm looking for. It's, you know, I could see a lot of gypsies wanting to put a curse on this film. Perhaps. You got me there. This is not going to break any grounds. It does a lot for bankers. I will say that. (laughs) It doesn't put a really positive face on a time when there isn't a lot of positivity to be had about the banking industry foreclosing on homes. They do create a lot of sympathy for our main character. But for gypsies, eh, yeah, it's kind of Borscht Belt obvious jokes. I don't mind. I don't think Raimi is a sophisticated wit. I think he's always had an adolescent prankish quality to his work. His best work, just like his worst work, has always been infantile and adolescent, and this is no different. To me, this just is a horror film greatest hits. We have the composer from Hellraiser and the plot from Stephen King's Thinner. I mean, that is where my mind immediately goes when you want to talk about a gypsy curse put in the beginning that is going to plague a person through to the end. And... This has a lot of thematic elements with Thinner. And I'm fine with Raimi taking greatest hits of horror. We talked about a little bit with Evil Dead how it wasn't the first Cabin in the Woods type of movie. And here, it's not the first Gypsy Curse movie. I'm not going to get all up in arms on behalf of the Gypsy Witches. I'll just take it for what it is. And I actually really enjoy the way it's used here. And we'll kind of talk about that as we go through. Well, look, if he could pull off a funny parody, yes, I'm willing to go with that. I'm just saying the first few minutes, especially when I hadn't seen the Evil Dead films yet, it's just something that put me on edge. And even watching it now, knowing what I'm getting into, yes, it is shorthand. Yes, he's riffing off of greatest hits, like you said, Arnie. I'll agree with that. And if he's able to make that entertaining, make that funny as we go through this film, then he'll win me over. Well, well, he's winning me over because, yes, he's doing what he's done before. But I think this guy's gotten better as a filmmaker. I mean, I really like the way that he's put these images together. I mean, we see the boy's POV. He's looking up at this window, and we see the shadows of these talons clawing, trying to get at him. We know nothing about what is coming for him at this point. And then they cut, and it's swirling around his head, and his dad puts those same hands on him. It's just nice match cutting. It really just sets a tone. Raimi is moving that camera just like he did when he was using pickup trucks and plyboards and all of that stuff. It is someone that has pulled from his long history of movie making and making cinematic, really visual looks and showing us that he's gotten better. I would say that whatever we think about the movie itself, I think Raimi is at the top of his game here and he shows it right from the first scene. I'm hooked. Yeah, I would say the skills he honed making the big-budget Spider-Man films, especially with digital manipulation, something he didn't have back even with Army of Darkness, are things that he's going to utilize to great effect here. Right. If there's a problem with Drag Me to Hell, it's not Raimi. He tells the story very, very well here. And I like it. I like the demon 
when it finally manifests, it slaps him around. I mean, it just whacks the kid over the banister. We think he's dead just by falling. I wasn't prepared for the ground opening up and then the thing pulling him down. I mean, all that was just like an afterthought. It was a fearsome beast to reconcile. I'm looking forward to finding out what this demon is, what this gypsy curse can rot. And I want to say, Jacob, you said killing this kid. The fact that this kid isn't just dead. This kid is damned to an eternity of torment in the fire and brimstone method. And this kid, he's not on screen very much, but man, does he sell me with his look of fear as those CGI hands are coming out of the CGI floor to suck him into CGI hell. Justice is a big theme here. I mean, does this kid deserve that? All right, he's a kid. You know what I mean? Yeah, he stole a necklace. He shouldn't have done that. He should be punished. No TV this week. You know, you, you got to go do the chores. <laughs> Hand it back and tell the woman you're sorry. He doesn't deserve demons to drag him down to hell where he will suffer this for an eternity. I mean, it's a brutal, brutal punishment. And it's a question as we carry on in the main story of, is this fair? Is this justice? Yeah, I think that it's a great setup. I couldn't ask for a better one for the story that's to follow. I'll honestly differ a little bit. The first time I saw this movie, I wasn't quite sure what I was watching. I didn't know a whole lot about it. Again, I'd seen it on video, so the trailers were pretty old. I wasn't sure if I was going to watch a period piece. I wasn't sure if I was going to watch a foreign language film. I didn't know exactly where it was going. And I'll say on repeated viewings, I love this opening. On first viewing, the opening intrigued me. But it didn't carry with it all the weight that it would after I'd seen the rest of the film. Like the best horror stories, they're always better the second time you hear them. But then we get to our main character. We are in the present day. And Christine Brown, Alison Lohman, an actress who I think I only know from this. This is all there pretty much is. No, I saw one movie that she ruined. Ruin, ruin, ruined. It was called Where the Truth Lies. It was a little art movie with Kevin Bacon and Colin Firth in which they were kind of like a Martin Lewis team that ended up in a murder. It was a murder mystery and she was the cub reporter that kind of stepped in and figured out where the truth lies, as the title is called. And not only was she bad in it, she ruined the movie. The movie could have been good and was killed by her. So I had no reason to celebrate Alison Lohman's return to film at all. Not a fan after that movie. And she was also apparently in Big Fish. I don't remember in that movie, but Tim Burton kind of discovered her. So that's the two things I would have seen her in. Nothing that made me wet her appetite, but I'll go ahead and say it. I think she's great in this role. She wasn't the original choice. I think she stepped in at the last minute, but I actually think that she makes this character way more empathetic than I want to feel about it. I have the total opposite opinion of you, Stuart. This Christine character, and maybe she plays it right. Maybe there's nothing wrong with how Allison plays her. I just don't like this character. She is a doormat, and she is walked over continually for 90 minutes, and I want to see someone that's going to be able to stand up to hell and not be dragged down there, or at least give me that idea. And right off the bat, no, she's sniveling to her boss, wondering about this assistant manager position. I wouldn't give this person a management position. She has no backbone. I like her in this, and I think that we're going to spend a lot of this podcast discussing those exact character traits, Jacob, because I do think she's playing it just right. Because as Stuart has said, this movie has the theme of justice, and does she deserve it? And I think 
during many of these scenes, we're supposed to think she does, and during other scenes, we're supposed to think she doesn't. She walks this razor's edge. And I'm going to give the actress credit for being able to pull off a character who is both reprehensible and likable at times. She plays sympathetic and nasty. And I can't say that a lot of actresses her age come to mind that could pull off these extremes and never alienate you from the character in a major way. Ambition is a tough thing to show. I think in these very first scenes, before she gets to helping out the old lady, we see someone that is trying really hard. She's practicing her diction. She's trying to erase her farm accent. She's walking past the bakery and pretending that all the sweets they have in the window aren't going to tempt her. She has a weight problem. We'll find out later. I like all of this. She is conquering the things that she can. She is jockeying pretty hard to get an assistant manager position. I don't see her as a doormat at all. I do see that she's disrespected, and I see that she's fighting to earn her place. And she's willing to do what it takes, and that's kind of what gets her into the situation she gets in. Come on, when Stuart... We got a villain in this film called Stuart. FYI, by the way, anyone named Stuart is always the villain or a mouse. And in this show, he's not a mouse. <laughs> I mean, there's a whole scene where her boss is like, hey, why don't you take your lunch early so you can go get me a sandwich? And then Stuart's like, get me a sandwich, too. And then he throws her under the bus because he made up that there was some flaw. I don't know. There is a fine line between showing someone trying to overcome their past, this farm girl that was fat, and someone that's trying to be assertive. I don't know. I Again, maybe this actress is playing the role right. I just don't like this role. And to me, I think that she looks ambitious. And yeah, as Stuart has alluded to, in 2009, an ambitious banker is a hard sell as a likable character. But also looking at her as someone of that age, I do see her as a fighter in these early scenes. And I see her facing a lot of challenges, and she doesn't seem like somebody who's going to win. I will say that based on this actress's performance, when David Paymer at one point drops she's the front runner for the management position, I'll agree that it came as a bit of a shock to me that others saw her as successful, because to me, it did seem like she was kind of sniveling for the promotion and perhaps overestimating her value to the company. It's a sexist environment, though. You know, the guy knows that he needs to promote within, and it's between an Asian man and a white woman. And you can see in the way that David Paymer plays it, he's more used to thinking of men as aggressive and the kinds of person that is right for an assistant manager position. I think that she shows she's aggressive. We'll find out is working on a contract that would earn the bank a lot of money. I mean, she is a go-getter and a doer. The fact that she ends up going out for the sandwich and all of that, I think, makes her more sympathetic because you realize she's fighting really set-in-stone conservative work ethics that have probably been this way in this bank since it opened. I don't blame her. I just hate Stewart, and I hate David Paymer. Stewart, of course, we're supposed to hate. David Paymer, I always like this actor. He shows up in so much, and he always has this great kind of comedic presence and so I'm drawn to like him. He's getting manipulated by Stuart, and later on we find out that Stuart's not very successful at it. But he seems also kind of caught in the middle with the way things are going on. Admittedly, yeah, David Paymer is more comical, which makes him more likable. Stuart is just, yeah, he's slimy because he does underhanded things. He lies, and later he'll steal 
to try and get that promotion. I mean, it's one thing to give your boss Lakers tickets. It's another thing to take her files and to sell her a client to a different bank. I mean, this guy is scumball. Whereas David Paymer, well, he's just old-fashioned. And that's a problem for Christine trying to work in this environment. The person who perhaps is the single, clear, likable person, at least in my mind in this film, is Christine's boyfriend, played by Justin Long, Clay. He seems to be the only clear-cut good guy in the movie. He stands by her when she starts going nuts. I think he's supposed to be the white knight, the thing that she is striving to be, someone who tries to make her be a better person. Again, our introduction to him, though, is Christine. She seems like a real people pleaser. And, you know, when someone goes so far out of the way to please someone, it's not always the best trade. It's always they're trying a little bit too hard. And so we get her. She's fixing his printer because he's not capable to pull a, what is it, a paperclip out of it. I didn't take that as people pleaser. I took that as Sam Raimi making fun that the Mac guy who has the big iMac there can't fix his own printer. It's a little bit of both, but I will say this. She has to fight so hard, Jacob, because no one thinks much of her. I mean, she'll walk away from that lunch date hearing that Clay's parents have called and still think of her as the farm girl that he's wasting his time with. I mean, that's why she's so over-eager. Is she eager to please? Is she too much? Is she overly ambitious? Well, that's really the question for this movie. And the second half of it is, does she deserve Mrs. Ganesh? We get this rich couple, Clay's parents, and we hear his mom over the phone. Oh, she's the one from the farm. Like, I, I guess I'm trying to figure out what is this film? Is this going to just be all broad characters and, hey... If it is, that's fine. Isn't that what horror is? We get our broad types so we can get to the slashings and we know who wants to die. I feel I have a hard time getting to any of these characters because they seem very broad to me. And I'm just kind of waiting around for the next Gypsy Curse so something can happen. I'm going to disagree. I'm actually going to say that Raimi shows that he can write characters so much better than where he came before. We, you know, I'm not going to get back into our Evil Dead discussion, but I will say this. These characters are more nuanced and sophisticated than anything in his original Evil Dead trilogy. And I like them all. With the exception of Stuart, I, there is something that I wrestle with and like with all of these characters. I feel empathetic in their pain, even if I ultimately want some to succeed and some to fail. And, of course, I really want to hate Mrs. Ganesh in the way that she's introduced. I'm going to agree with you, Stuart. Now, the difference is, here, you have to have characters that you like. This isn't just your standard horror film where you can send a bunch of people out and they are types. For this kind of a morality tale, you have to have well-drawn characters. So, yes, I do definitely think that some of it is Raimi's skill has increased, but also in... Other Raimi films, you could get away with broadly drawn types. And here, you need well-done characters. And I do also agree with you that she is delivering that. And Mrs. Ganesh, though, talk about broadly drawn types, okay? She certainly is broadly drawn. She is... She's annoying! But she, in addition to being annoying, though, in this first scene, she's coming, she is begging for an extension on her bank loan, her third extension, and you get that... She's also somewhat sympathetic. She's tragic is what she is. I mean, sympathetic is a stretch. We don't want to see this woman thrown out on the street. What else will become of her? It's a, literally a death sentence to do such a thing. But the problem is she's not making it easy for anyone to help her. They've already extended this twice. 
She has no sense of propriety and manners. She's pulling out her teeth. She's ghastly to look at. It's the kind of person that immediately brings up our revulsion and bias towards old age, gypsies, what have you. But you can see uh, it would be really easy to want to get away and reject this offer. I see Christine's side of it very clearly here. It's just hard to empathize. You say it makes her easy to empathize. I'm leaning with her. I would say, sorry, thanks, no thanks, security. Yeah, anyone that feels comfortable enough to pull their dentures out to suck on some candy in public, it's going to be tough to get my sympathy. I definitely see both sides of the coin here, though. Yes, at the end, both people have transgressions. Perhaps if you're going for an extension on the bank loan and you're begging for sympathy, having the moral fiber to steal all of the candy off of her desk out of the candy bowl isn't the best way to go. But I think I sympathize with Ganesh because Christine sympathizes with Ganesh. If left completely on her own, Christine would give Ganesh one more chance. Now, is it likely Ganesh could actually pay her loan? No. Is anything happening that would actually change her life circumstance? No. But Christine has a good heart, and if it wasn't for the fact that David Paymer's sitting there and using this whole thing as a test to see if Christine deserves a promotion, Christine would give it. So I see both sides. I think Christine may have gone a little bit too far calling security when you have a woman who's begging. She wasn't attacking. She was on her knees pleading. But I also see that Ganoush overreacted a little bit or a hell of a lot. I mean, this is where I do feel some sympathy for Christine and I guess causes a problem with me for much of this movie. We've talked about justice. I don't see Christine. She's the one that's going to get the curse. I don't see her as the bad guy here. I see her as an employee of the bank. This person isn't going to be able to pay on their loan. I mean, let's be realistic here. She is doing her job. She isn't the one that's causing Ganesh to be thrown out on the street. Look, we've all gone through this housing crisis. There's been debate upon debate about what caused it, who was at fault. Was it people knowingly taking out loans they couldn't afford? Was it banks taking advantage of people? We all have our opinions, but I guess I can't blame the housing crisis on one bank teller. And that's a problem for me because that's going to be a focus of this movie. And we'll get into it, these ideas of justice. But I do feel for Christine here because why is she getting cursed? She is not the one to blame for the housing crash. There's one line that tells me we're supposed to not go with it. It's when David Paymer sits there and is evaluating all the options and he goes, if we foreclose, it makes a lot of money for the bank. Who are you going to root for? The woman who's about to be homeless or a bank getting greater profits? To me, that is blaming the bank. That is not blaming Christine. Ganesh should have cursed the entire home mortgage system, in my opinion, not this one person. To her... Christine represents all of that and further embarrassment because she does call the security on her. And it's, yeah, a shameful way that she has to be dragged out of the establishment here. No, I totally am with you, Jacob. Christine does not deserve the fate that she's given. She's ambitious and maybe she probably could have helped and didn't. And that makes her a little callous. But I don't think that it means that she should burn in hell for the rest of her years. Or maybe it does. I mean, we'll discuss it as we go further. That's certainly the way Ganesh feels about it when she's thrown out on the street. I got to say, this scene climaxes with two really cool callbacks. Did you guys catch them? Mrs. Ganesh's car is the yellow Oldsmobile that Ash drove in Evil Dead. I didn't realize that in this scene. I realize it later in the parking garage. I've seen every Sam Raimi film. I know the classic. 
Yeah. That's actually the car's name. He calls it the classic. Yeah, it was it was something that really helped me see if I wasn't feeling it already. This is Evil Dead, all right. And then two, look way in the background. It's Octavia Spencer, who has also had a cameo bit in Spider-Man. She must be buds with him. A couple years before the help. That one I did not catch at all. But here, Ganesh is obviously pissed off, but... Does she intend to damn Christine to hell yet? Because that hasn't happened. That's going to happen in the next scene in the parking garage. She obviously doesn't have good things planned for Christine. But at this point, there's no soul damning going on. And I have to wonder if Ganesh would have gone through with it had things gone a little differently in the parking garage. She broke into her car. How did you think things were going to turn out? Yeah, she was either going to kill her here... Or damn her forever later. I mean, take your pick. She's here to implement major pain. She wants vengeance. She's wrathful. And this scene is all kinds of awesome. This was the scene that they showed at Comic-Con for obvious reasons. It is as good as anything with Ash battling a ninja-flipping witch as we're likely to see. I mean, it's just classic slapstick horror. It's both thrilling. I mean, I literally jumped at certain parts of it. And I was laughing so hard when she gums her with no teeth in. Oh, that's hysterical. Yeah, just the kinds of touches that only Raimi can do. There are moments in this where I just go, ah, Raimi. You know, nobody else in horror, nobody that works in the genre these days knows how to do these flourishes. And this scene just has them. Yeah, after watching a little kid get sent to hell, I'm surprised I'm in a comedy all of a sudden. I didn't see this coming. You always were. I think that the fact that when the kid gets sent to hell, the animation is a little obvious, tells you you're in a big cartoon. Yes. I think that Raimi, at this point, after three Spider-Man films, could have had the resources to pull far more convincing CGI. He doesn't want it. He wants to set a fun, lighthearted tone. And so even when you see a kid getting dragged to hell, it has the same kind of lighthearted spirit that, yes, the Pit Witch does in Evil Dead. Now, if you wanted to take that all serious, you're like, so you're saying a man in medieval times being sentenced to his death in a pit is funny? It depends on how you tell it. That has a very obvious tone right from the beginning of that movie, though. This, I I didn't take it as a comedy right away. Yeah, I think Raimi's balance, you have to recognize that comedy is always an element. I don't think I've ever seen anything where it was stark. You know, maybe some of those dramas he did in the late 90s. But for the most part, I really feel like part of what makes his horror so goosey and and has you jump is that you've been giggling, too. It's a one-two punch. You laugh, you jump. You know, when that hanky goes by and you see it go past the back window and then you notice that she's sitting in the back, That's a legitimate, scary, great jump. And then it's immediately thrown out so that they can have this slapstick fight with driving into cars and being thrown into the front seat and all the stuff that happens. I just think it's tremendous. And the Comic-Con audience was up on their feet. They loved it. I get it now. I've seen those Evil Dead films. Donate to that podcast. You can hear my feelings there as a newbie. But I get it now in this film. And yes, now that I understand... What Raimi's trying to do, I am able to have a bit more fun with it, as eyes are stapled shut, and there's a lot of shoving things down throats and hair being pulled in this film. I think Raimi has a fetish. Christine suffers so badly in this. I think even the actress said that she took a lot of abuse, had a lot of schlack dumped on her, had a lot of hairs pulled and maybe completely pulled out. She's beaten up. Maybe that's why the other actresses wouldn't do the part. She's really getting some bruises. 
it's nice to know Raimi isn't sexist because he beats the living hell out of Tobey Maguire, beats the living hell out of Bruce Campbell. I was wondering if he'd be as rough on an actress as a lead. And yeah, it's quite obvious she is made to do many, many unpleasant things in the course of filming this movie. But I could definitely see to your point, Jacob, if you don't know Raimi, if you're coming in thinking this is a straight horror, this would be definite cause for confusion. You wouldn't expect, yes, this fight to play this way. You would think that this would be supposed to be scary because, you know, this is the part that we've been building to. But that's just not his style. But dare I say, better than ever before, Raimi does such a good job of playing it close to the vest where there's really funny things like gumming the chin, but it's funny in such a way that it's also really fucking creepy. And the staple flying out of the eye, one of my just favorite visuals here, is amusing, but it's surrounded by this intense fight. I mean, it's a pretty intense fight, and for the Raimi fans, I think you get everything. But for a total newbie, I think that there might be a question of, is that supposed to be funny? Or is it supposed to be creepy? And there's just such a wonderful blend of both. And I want to point out here, forget your PG-13 stigma. Arnie, I know you're a big proponent of this. This movie doesn't need to be any harder than it is. This is giving you everything that you need to be scared and laughing and all of that. It is not hurt by the rating whatsoever. No, I'm actually shocked to find out this was PG-13. Yeah, I completely agree. And because it was Raimi, I was willing to give it more the benefit of the doubt. But the under-17 audience that normally goes to PG-13 horror is what I was trying to avoid more than Raimi himself. But PG-13 horror makers, I think, should take this as a template of how you can give scares and make creepy films and still get the broader audience that PG-13 allows. Yeah, basically, he doesn't show boobs, and he doesn't show blood, but everything else is fair game, and I really feel like he brings it. Now, question, did they change the rules here? We know a little boy stole a necklace, and that's what got the curse on him, but here, she actually has something taken from her and then given back. Is that the same thing? Does it just work with objects? I thought it was weird, too, Stuart, that at the beginning, this boy stole something, and I thought, oh, maybe... Christine is stealing the home back from Ganoush, and that's why there's going to be this curse. But no, she takes this button from her and curses it and just gives it back to her. I guess it's just gypsies will curse you. They could curse you in many different ways. That's how I took it, is it was the gypsies curse, and the curse was surrounding, in this case, the button. She needed something of hers to get the curse on. We don't know all the specifics. We know the boy was cursed. We don't know if there was something of the boy that was cursed, but the gypsy could curse any object. Yeah, and it doesn't matter. I mean, we know a little bit here. It should be said the credit sequence tipped us off that there's a three-day rule and monsters and flies. We kind of know a little bit about what's coming because of that prologue, because of the credit sequence, but you're right. We're never asked to know fully what the circumstances were that put Juan in danger, and maybe they're closer to Christine's predicament than they seem here. But doesn't matter. We're now into the second act of the film, where Christine gets the living shit kicked out of her time and again. Yeah, the shit kicking starts in that garage. And this is what I was alluding to earlier, is Christine could have gotten away. She finally gets Ganesh out of the car. She could have just driven away. <laughs> Instead, she takes a moment of 
pride and ego and shouts and calls the gypsy a bitch. And that allows Ganesh to somewhere find a cinder block to break <laughs> through the window. And that is Christine's undoing. Had Christine just driven away, movie over. Yes, if she had not tried to stand up for herself and tell this gypsy where to go, she could have had a happy life. Don't stand up for yourself, ladies. There's a difference between standing up for yourself and antagonizing a crazy person attacking you. I think someone attacks you and messes up your car. You earn a bitch. You get to say that. Absolutely. I'm with Jacob on this. And I'll just go ahead and say it right now. Christine does not deserve it. This is not a traditional horror movie in which conventional morality is upheld. This is a movie that flips that script and says, you can be a good person and you're going to burn. I think Christine is gray. I think they keep her morally gray in this film. And I think they do that intentionally because, yeah, as I said in the plot summary, she burns. Yes, she does burn, and I never feel like she deserves it for anything that she does here. It's always very gray, and she's always shown and demonstrated in much of her life to be a sympathetic, caring individual. Maybe too much. Jacob has pointed out. Maybe she should have stood up to the boss or Stu and said, I'm not going to go get your sandwich. I'm not a secretary. I'm a peer. But yes, this is a movie that surprises, because traditionally horror movies are about You want to be a virgin and follow the rules. And if you don't follow the rules, that's what gets you. That's not what happens here. In this second act, she really tries to do whatever she can to make it right. And it will never be enough. First thing is she asked the question. You know, I think every social climber with a conscience eventually asked the question that she does of Clay when he comes and rescues her and they're walking along the sidewalk. And is that, did she do enough to help? You know, she has that thought. Should I have let that woman have her house? Am I the bad guy? She is self-reflexive here. That shows you that she's thinking about this. She could have easily said, that crazy bitch tried to kill me. But her thoughts aren't there. Her thoughts are, what did I do to incur that wrath? And did I make the right choice? I think that makes her sympathetic. And I think that shows everything that she does in the next hour of the movie is about making it right. But does she try to make it right because she regrets not letting her have her house? Or does she try to make it right because she's saving her own ass? I, again, think she walks that line. Things she does here, she specifically does just to save her own ass. Later on, she's going to sacrifice her own cat. It's to save her ass. It tries to show her as flirting with ruthlessness. But there's a lot of stuff she tries to do before we get to that point. I mean, she goes back to the granddaughter's, Ganesha's granddaughter's house to try to find her and make this up to her. And I guess we get some more comedy here. I thought it was funny. I mean, you know, the joke is always Christine gets vomited on. You know, she had a dream (laughs) where Ganesh vomited on her. Now, literally, we find out Ganesh is dead. It's awfully fast. I think it's the next day. This woman left the bank, promptly died, and then had a whole funeral service within 24 hours, 12 hours even. And now, yes, Christine has shown up and all of the family witnesses her wrestling with the corpse that has some taxidermy fluid that just gushes on her. I took that as formaldehyde. Yeah. Yeah, I thought it was embalming fluid. Yeah, something like that. Not taxidermy. They weren't setting her up for a pose. (laughs) (laughs) Who knows with these crazy gypsies? That is true. Yeah, we don't know. I think it was a home job at any rate. I don't think that they were using the... The traditional funeral parlor, if you know what I mean. But I thought it was funny. I like all of these scenes. I like that, yes, we see that Christine goes to talk to that daughter. 
she is there to say I am sorry. And yes, it's obviously personally motivated because the demon already gave her a fat lip. You know, it smacked her around. She knows that something is coming. She went to a psychic and they couldn't even talk to her about what they saw coming in her near future. She knows that she's got to do something. She's motivated by her misfortune. But I don't think that that's everything. And we're going to see by the end of it, she does what she does because she believes in justice and she wants things to be right. Again, I think some of the power of the story is that I'm not so convinced of her goodness and not being self-interested. I think that's the theme that follows her from before she's cursed when she's getting sandwiches all the way to the very end of this entire movie. But yeah, I do love that funeral scene and just... So much happens to her, from the dream with the maggots in the mouth and the fly in the mouth to the funeral scene. This is where I'm really back in Evil Dead territory, where only Ash has suffered this much cinematic abuse, and Christine's getting it all in one movie. Ash had three. True enough. It's funny, Arnie, because I feel like she's too goody-good. that <laughs> She's trying to make it men. She's going to the house. She is trying to fix things, and she's still getting shit on for it. And I'm not scared through a lot of this horror. It's a lot of loud noises and shadows. I haven't seen those paranormal activity films, but I'm guessing this is what they're like. A real loud noise and... Nothing like that. I won't allow that comment to stand. Nothing like that. (laughs) I knew that would upset you. Nothing. But it is all happening in a house. And again, I'm a big proponent. I like haunted house movies. Her boyfriend has this ostentatiously big house. I don't know why he needs this house. He's a college professor, but he comes from rich family, and they feel like he needs a big house. So when that demon comes for her about halfway through the film, it's a great scene. It's really cool that they do it in broad daylight. You know, that's a trick. It's one thing to do shadows and night and scares and POVs, but in broad daylight it comes for her. And she's got to run upstairs and shadows creep under the door. It comes through the window, very Evil Dead shot in there. I think it's great. And you mentioned the cat killing. That is always how I will remember this movie. You know, they tease it (laughs) because she has this hang in there cat poster in her room, just reminding you what it takes to hang in there. The psychic she consulted suggested animal sacrifice. And this vegan, after that moment, she picks up the knife. She's ready to do the cat. Again, ruthless, killing her pet. I think the mistake is she never has a bloody pentagram. They should have focused more on killing this cat. I feel like she didn't follow the ritual. She was given a book. Who knows if she did it right? Maybe if she were better at occult sciences, she would be (laughs) among the living at the end of this. I don't know, but I doubt it. I tend to think that all this really shows is that even someone with all of these humanitarian values, I don't kill animals, I volunteer for the dog shelter, She can be brought to killing an animal to preserve herself because what's coming is that fierce. So we finally get this scene, you know, we've heard on the phone Clay's mom talking about, oh, you're dating that farm girl. Christine decides, hey, let's go to dinner. Let's meet the parents. And you know what? This is like the first time I feel that there's a character moment where I like Christine. She has this real honest moment where she talks about her mom being an alcoholic and like that wins Clay's mom over. She warms up to her because of her honesty. I feel like, look, you're doing the right thing here. You're being rewarded for it. You're standing up to this cold bitch 
that's been trying to tear you down throughout this whole relationship. Like, here's a moment I really like Christine because she's strong. She's honest. This is my favorite scene in the movie. This is just comic gold. I could watch it again and again and again and study it and see new things. It's hilarious. She shows up. She's the farm girl. What has she brought? A harvest cake. The parents ain't even touching it. You can see them just like, we'll be putting this in the trash, you know, and then they have a cat that's hissing at her and she's just come from killing the cat. Now she thinks she's ended the curse, but she's also suspecting maybe the cat knows what she did, you know, like osmosis or cat sense. Maybe Halle Berry told her, but all of these dynamics are great. The date is going so badly that yes, when she finally has a confessional real moment where she just, no pretense, yes, my mom's an alcoholic, this is who I really am, I have this bank job that you think is menial, but I'm actually really good at it and could make the bank a lot of money and I'm going places, you see it turn in the parents. It's a really nice moment, which is why it's so painful when you find out that Lamia is still coming for her. Yeah, it becomes one of those uncomfortable scenes where you become so embarrassed for the character that you yourself want to look away from the screen. Yes. Because everything was going so right, and then she's throwing glasses against closed doors and acting like a crazy person. Yeah, mom is telling her son openly in front of her by the end of it, just let this sick girl go. Well, and who can blame her? I mean, she's hearing voices and bangings and... Her cake is eating her utensils. I mean, it's hard to know what they see. Is it all in her mind? Is this all just a gag that the demon has pulled on her? It's hard to know whether they're just ignorant of it or whether some of these things are actually happening. But the long story short is she makes a fool out of herself and all of that goodwill she earned at the table is completely gone. There's no reason for Clay to hang around anymore. She should be abandoned by everyone. She's already embarrassed herself at the bank with a bloody nose and fighting with Stu. She's kind of at her lowest moment now. Yeah, that bloody nose at the bank, pure Raimi, when David Paymer is just getting showered with blood. Yes, now that I've seen these Evil Dead films, I know that's a Raimi thing. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was right in Evil Dead. Same thing happened to Ash where, with this fountain of blood. But here is where I think, again, Justin Long is painted as the good character because... The parents are like, leave this crazy woman. Justin never wavers. Yes, Justin is the purely good character, which makes me think that he's set up for the worst of it. I'll get to it when we get to the end, but it makes me think that he'll be the one to suffer more at the end of the film than Christine. I wasn't prepared for the end we're given. I thought it would end up different for him. Yeah, I'll agree that I think she sacrificed her cat. This character is painted so good, and because I see Christine as morally ambiguous, the whole question, I have this whole movie, and I couldn't remember the end when I watched it again. My question was, will she sacrifice her good boyfriend who would do anything for her to save herself from damnation? And that is a great moral conflict. If you believe Christine is goody-goody, you never believe she would take such a good guy and damn him to hell. But at no point do I think she's above it. Yeah, but she never does any move to think that, that she's going to do it. I mean, it's not on the table right away. Up to this point still, she believes that there is someone from the mystical realm that can help her. If Animal Sacrifice didn't do it, if Ram Joss couldn't do it, well, finally, 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 we're back in Pasadena, and I'm sure that Sean can do it, because that's what the prologue told us. One day, the Lamia Beast and her will meet again, and it's on. It's been 40 years, and she's ready for it. And so this is going to be the climax of the film. 
I'm quite certain that this seance in which they're going to bring the beast to them is going to be the conclusion. Yeah, it's Shades of the Exorcist, right? I got Poltergeist a lot. You know, Raimi was developing the Poltergeist remake at his Ghost House Productions. I think it was on his brain. And I got a lot of Tangina out of this character. You know, at some point, they summon other ghosts into the room. It reminded me of that moment on the stairwell. Raimi is really showing his love of Spielberg's PG-rated horror. Yeah, Sean is so looking forward to fighting the Lamia again, getting back for that lost child. That it only cost $10,000 to set up the meeting. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, if you don't get that they're going for cartoon logic, though, by this point, she's trying to pack up all her belongings to go pawn to earn that $10,000. And the gypsy appears, and we literally get to see an anvil drop on someone's head. We are in Looney Tunes territory now. Eyes pop out. Yeah, very cartoony. I like that the movie takes Christine to where Ganesh was. She is at the exact point when she's begging the pawnbroker for more money that Ganesh was when she was begging to keep her house. Oh, yeah. No, I like that, too. I just don't like the scene in which she's going around collecting her things and Ganesh comes at her in a physical, ghosty way. Well, you may not like Ganesh in the ghosty way, but I certainly like Lamia in the goatly way because we get the seance where they're going to conjure Lamia and trap it in the body of a goat that they will kill. Seems to work for me. I mean, as logical as anything else in this movie, I have no reason to suspect this won't work. Of course, there's a climax, which means you have to have higher stakes. I figure that assistant is dead. He seems like the kind of character. We haven't met him before the scene. He could have died. Maybe Ram Joss could die. But I feel like everything's going to get resolved for Christine in this moment. I was not prepared for the way it all turned out, which is that our super bad hero is dead on the floor and the goat didn't get killed. I think this does have the best joke. I do love when the goat starts talking. I wish <laughs> like the film was more like that. And it's something Raimi brought from Evil Dead. There's a very similar scene with the taxidermied head. And that is the best moment. That's when I laugh out loud during this film. I wish the film pushed it even further like that scene. Yeah, that goat is hysterical. This is kind of what I'm talking about when I say that Raimi is intentionally using subpar special effects for comedic value. That animatronic goat is hysterical. This is my favorite scene of the movie, when that goat is running around, and then, again, straight out of, I think, all the Evil Deads, the assistant starts floating like a puppet. Yeah, starts dancing around. We've talked about some dances in those films. He even spits out the dead cat. They really don't want you to forget she killed that cat. But this is the big turning point. Sean the Big Bad is dead, and now Christine is not going to have anyone else to help her. The greatest help she had is dead on the floor, so the only thing she can do is pass the curse on to somebody else. She can damn somebody else. And Arnie, this is where I would say that we see that she is not this questionable figure that you keep wanting to paint her as. She's a good person, because who wouldn't want to see her damn Stu? Stu deserves it badly. And she's thinking about it. I mean, I love that she's in a diner overeating again, calling him up, preparing to give him this button that she's put into an envelope. And she doesn't. This is the moment where you realize, okay, she says, I would rather die than to put this, what I've been through on somebody else, even the schmuck Stu. Yeah, not only has Stu, like, stolen her loan account, the big project she was working on to get that assistant manager position, but he, like, took it to a rival bank, so, like, his own place of employment has lost 
tons of money. This guy deserves to go to hell. And no, she can't even stand up. Get a backbone. Tell this guy to fuck off. You're you're knocking her for this? This is her best moment. This is her best moment as a character. It's why we know we should really like her. It's not her being wimpy. It's her accepting responsibility. She's saying, I know how bad this is, and that's not what this guy deserves. I think that's noble. That's martyrdom. I kind of split the difference, because this guy does so deserve it that from a movie logic point of view, he should be dragged to hell. But if you take it beyond a movie logic point of view to a real world point of view, yeah, perhaps nobody deserves it, and there's nobody she can come to terms with doing. I like that she's looking for people who are almost dead already. She almost gives it to this guy who is on a respirator and... But that's not fair. We're talking about eternity. Just because he's close to death, we're not talking about killing somebody. We're saying you're going to burn forever. Yeah, you can't find somebody else. A surly waitress doesn't deserve to burn forever. That's really what you got to take into consideration. It's not taking a life. It's damning a life. I guess I'm just a vindictive bastard then. I would screw Stu so hard if I was Christine. (laughs) You know, whether you would do it or not, I cannot say what I would do in that moment. But out of this moment, I totally respect her now. I identify her, if nothing else, as a good person that deserves redemption. And I believe she's going to get it when she thinks, hey, maybe I can give it to the dead woman. That is an ingenious way to go about it. And yes, here's the thing that I'll say. I'll say that I've always thought she was morally ambiguous. Here is where I think she's made the turn. She's made her choice to be a good person. She's going to be a strong person no matter what. She's going to stand up for herself. But here, she'll put what's right above herself. At this point, this character would not refuse Ganesh her house. She did it earlier to better herself. She took away Ganesh's house for her own profit. Now she's not that person. But yeah... Even more than Stuart deserves to burn in hell, Ganesh, for doing this over a perceived slight that Christine may or may not have deserved, she should go to hell. That's right. Anyone that would play with the devil deserves to burn with him. And yeah, I don't think anyone has a problem with the idea of Ganesh burning forever after all the hair pulling and gumming and all the terrible things that this beast has done to this girl. Yeah, send her to hell. I'm cool with it. This is my second favorite Christine moment after that scene with Clay's parents where she kind of, you know, earns their respect for at least a couple of minutes before she goes crazy. But again, I love, you know, Christine. She's got her shovel. She's digging up graves. She's wrestling with this corpse. I'm going to shove this down her throat. This is the person I want to root for. And gosh, it's been like, what, 80 minutes that I've been waiting for this person to show up. Oh, I think she's been here, but I do love it when she digs up the grave and uses the shovel to pry open the mouth. (laughs) You kind of kind of find it funny that throughout all of this, Sam Raimi is hard on Christine. He's equally hard on Ganesha's corpse. Yes, it is a true knockdown, drag out cat fight. The kind of thing Russ Meyer would have made 30, 40 years ago. I mean, it is truly a chick on chick battle and a great one. Kind of a poltergeist moment here too. You know, as the quarrel is happening, the grave is filling up with torrential rains, the kind of rains that LA, by the way, never gets. And she nearly drowns here. You know, the headstone conks her on the head as she's trying to climb out. We think that they may both die. I definitely thought that. Even though it would be kind of anticlimactic, the movie's reaching its running length. It could end at any moment. Anyone could die. As I said at the beginning, nobody is safe. And yeah, 
It could be she frees herself from eternal damnation only to die by getting hit with a headstone. Yeah, obviously horror movies are based a lot in ironies, and that would be very ironic. And instead, no, the crucifix actually is her ladder to climb out of this slimy pit and to get to a nice hot shower, kind of a nice psycho throwback. It's another story about a deceptive uh, banker who has a change of heart. I'm totally believing that, well, Christine is saved. Now, we know that earlier there was a mix-up in the car with Clay and that envelopes got mixed up. And I thought I knew what had happened. I was pretty sure that the cursed button did not end up in Ganesh's mouth, but that it was in Clay's hands and that Clay, in these final moments, would be the one dragged to hell. I was certain of it. I would have laid any amount of money on it. That's not what we get. I thought it was going there too, Stuart. I mean, they set this up for the ironic ending. The boss calls. He knows about the stolen loan. Christine's going to get the assistant manager's job. She's able to walk by that Mrs. Fields cookie free sample because she doesn't need a pork out anymore. She's confident. She gets her new coat. You know, we see Clay. He's got the wedding ring. Yeah, I totally thought this was setting up. It's her great day until her fiance gets dragged into hell. It should be also pointed out that they're rushing off to go to a cabin in the woods. Another funny Evil Dead twist. (laughs) But no, this is brutal. I actually think that this last scene is really tough. Like, it hit me in the gut when I saw it. And they told us they were going to. It's in the title. But I just wasn't prepared. I agree. I've seen this movie three or four times at this point. And every time, this end is hard. Because they have... Drop the line. The only character development we get about Justin Long's character, other than he's a good guy, is he collects coins. And when they brought it up at the parents' dinner, I should have gotten it the very first time. Why do they keep bringing up these damn coins? Well, coins are round, buttons are round, and Christine should have looked in that envelope. (laughs) But he has saved the button for her. I thought for sure, though, that he's holding the button. It's his possession, right? Yeah, did she give it to him? You could almost seen it gone that way, but I think it's the right choice, the nice choice to think that she learns about it. She has this drabby old coat with buttons that fall off of it. She splurged on a nice new coat for her nice new life, and by him holding up that button, that's it. All of that is the rug being yanked underneath us. It's the twist ending that we deserve. Maybe not the fate that Christine does, but it gives us this jolt that really makes this movie stick with me. Yeah, they did set up earlier on that you have to do some formal, like, I am giving you this. So I, I it's not enough that he's holding it. I thought that would have been a great twist, but I guess she never formally gave him the button. He just happened to find it. So, yeah, she is dragged into hell. And it's not just like she's dragged into hell. No, she falls onto the train tracks. Is the train going to come and hit her? Well, no, she's saved by demons pulling into hell before that train can smash her. But it's like double horror here. Her horrified eyes, they CGI them as she's dragged down. It's quite a thing to look at. And I'm glad that Clay knew. You know, they could have written it that Clay just thought she fell on the tracks and that was the end. But the horribleness of it is, is everyone's going to say, oh, she just fell off the tracks and he's going to know what he saw. He's going to know that she was right all along. He was a cynic. He didn't believe in all the mumbo jumbo and mysticism, even though he paid for it. But she was right and he couldn't save her. And what's he going to do? And also, the CGI they use, when we saw that boy get dragged to hell, they were coy. They showed us a shadow, a CGI shadow reaching up. Here, we see her turning skeletal. I mean, 
in addition to just the thought of eternal torment and whatever vague notion you may have of that being, seeing her turn into this eye-popping skeleton as the second-to-last image of the film, the very last image being Justin Long's just completely torment-stricken face as he realizes all of this and has the same reaction as the audience. Ooh, Raimi, he's a cruel bastard. (laughs) All those Spider-Man films, none of them had a happy ending either. Horror could use more guys like this. He just knows how to hit you. We've laughed, we've enjoyed it, and without shedding any blood, he's made a more brutal movie than most of the R-rated horror that I've sat through in the last decade. I agree. Like, I like that with a horror film, yeah, kill everyone. Like, be brutal. I don't like when you get the fake outs and they end up living. Yeah, I do like that he goes all the way here. But Christine does drop the line. She says, I could have given Ganesh a extension on the loan. It was my decision to do that. So, like, she takes responsibility. Like, I guess going back to that sense of justice, is it really her fault Ganesh ended up on the street or would have? I mean, she seems to think so by the end of this film. That's what true haunting is, Jacob. Hell is not for the wicked. It's for those that can't handle doing bad things. If she were more of a bastard, she'd be among us. It's because she aspired to goodness that she's damned. And that's why this movie hurts. Yeah, in no other horror movie does somebody who makes the choice to be a good person get what she gets. Right. If she had been a bastard, she would have been free. She could have said two days ago, I'm just going to give this away. I don't care about eliminating the curse or killing the Lamia. I just want myself to be free of it. She wasn't selfish, but maybe she should have been. So Jacob, Stuart, do you recommend Drag Me to Hell? Jacob. You could go listen to our Evil Dead series. If you haven't seen those films, if you're planning on watching Drag Me to Hell, I think you need to watch those first. This film makes a lot more sense in the context of those previous Raimi films. When I first watched this, I had a hard time understanding the humor and the horror. It it never quite gelled with me. It didn't gel with me this second viewing, but I get it this time. I get why people said, oh, this is Raimi returning to his roots. And so I guess... If you find a lot of this stuff funny, you may be willing to go with it. I I found moments to be funny. I I loved the animatronic goat talking, and there were moments that I enjoyed it. But my biggest problem is I never feel that much for Christine. I I never get invested in her, whether she goes to hell or not. By the end, I honestly just don't care. She's a character that never wins me over, and whether I think she's a bastard, whether I think she's too sweet, I should feel something for her. I should feel something kind of investment in this movie to make me care about the outcome, whether I agree with the outcome or it troubles me seeing this poor innocent soul dragged to hell. But in the end, I don't feel anything for her. And that's the biggest problem for me. It's not that, you know, the good guy loses here. It's not that the humor doesn't always work for me. It's that I just don't care about the people in this movie. So I can't give it a recommend, not recommended. Stuart. Well, it doesn't surprise me, Jacob. If you listen to the other shows, you and I are responding to totally different things in the series. This is more of the Raimi that I love. I would say this is on par with some of his best. I'm not going to rank this in the Evil Dead series yet. I'll do that on Friday when we get to the reboot. But I think this is going to be on the high end. I really think this is one of the best Raimi films I can think of. And part of it is I love horror. And so that's my natural bias. But I just really feel like He did something great telling an original story with a devastating conclusion 
and showing all of the skills that he's learned through all of his decades of filmmaking, he's really arrived here. I feel like he's really represented all that he can do, which is all the more powerful considering it's the movie he made after Spider-Man 3, the movie that had everyone kind of crapping on him. Yeah, this is a strong, high, high recommend. And I hope everyone can join us over at the donation show and hear the rest of my thoughts on the series. But definitely check out Drag Me to Hell. I think it's great. And I agree with Stuart. This is a strong recommend. I find it very hard to judge this movie without the background of the Evil Dead. I don't know that I could recommend it to somebody who's never seen the Evil Dead. By the time I saw Drag Me to Hell, I had seen Evil Dead 20 years earlier and seen it so often in the previous 10 leading up to Drag Me to Hell that I could virtually recite it. So being a Raimi fan since Darkman, loving what he did with so many of his properties... And seeing it all come together here with a remarkable return to horror. I think this is a great film on its own. And I rejoice to see Raimi still having this in him. And still having this mischievous, demonic, demented quality. Where he'll torture his actors, he'll torture his characters. It's a great film that pulls no punches. And... For me, to give unequivocal praise to a PG-13 horror film is really (laughs) saying something. So, absolutely recommend. And I also recommend that you listeners hear our Evil Dead retrospective series. It will only be available for a limited time, like all of our previous donation series. After World War Z comes out, the zombie apocalypse comes, and these donation podcasts go away into the vault. So head to nowplayingpodcast.com. It's $10. We're spending far more than that to see two theatrical releases with Evil Dead's remake and World War Z. And if you're not planning on seeing those in theaters, donate now, download these podcasts, keep them on your hard drive, because you won't be able to get these podcasts when these movies hit video. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to the reboot. I know it's been out. We haven't seen it as of this recording, so... I can't wait to all wrap it up and keep going through zombies all the way through summer. It's it's going to be a great time. And Arnie, you called it out. We're paying more for tickets than we're asking for this donation. We don't get rich off of this, folks. This is just to pay the expenses. Bandwidth, the website, the software to edit the shows. This is a labor of love, but hey, your donations help some of that pain. It helps us keep going. helps just pay those expenses that the show costs. And whatever you do, don't shame us. We beg you, and you shame us. Without donors, we would not be able to do this. We have so many of you listening and downloading and taking so much bandwidth. Without donations, this show could not continue. And we thank everyone who has donated and everyone who's planning on donating. Thank you so much for your support. And so, Jacob Stewart, thank you for joining me. We will be back on Friday for donors with the remake of The Evil Dead. And on Tuesday, another theatrical release. We're headed to theaters a lot this year when we pick up our Marvel series with Iron Man 3. So until next time, I beat you, you old bitch! Sylvia, get us! Ah! Choke on it, bitch! 
Thank you for listening to this episode of Now Playing, and we hope you've enjoyed the show. Did I get any in my mouth? Oh, my God. Did I get any in my mouth? If you've enjoyed this podcast, you can hear Arnie Stewart and Jacob's reviews of Sam Raimi's Evil Dead films as part of the Spring Donation series. These podcasts are only available through June of 2013. You can find out the details on how to hear these podcasts by clicking the banner at the top of our website at nowplayingpodcast.com. Honey, I make my money on tips. Support from listeners like you help keep Now Playing operating. Never have I begged for anything. But now, I beg for you. You can find hundreds of other movie reviews at our archive section at nowplayingpodcast.com. I beg you, and you shame me. While at nowplayingpodcast.com, be sure to join our forums where you can discuss this review with other listeners. We all must be receptive. You can also follow Now Playing on Facebook and Twitter where the hosts post new episode announcements and written movie reviews. Hey! Hey! Hey, hey, no! Hey! Oh, God, no! The links to our social media pages can be found at nowplayingpodcast.com. But we cannot attempt to understand the world by intellect alone. Now Playing Credit Narration by Brock. There is no friction with the proper diction. Good sounds abound when the mouth is round. Drag Me to Hell is the property of Ghost House Pictures and Universal Pictures. Now Playing is not affiliated with Ghost House Pictures or Universal Pictures, and no infringement is intended. That's it. I'm done. I'm out. The opinions expressed on Now Playing are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the opinion of Venganza Media Incorporated. You will be surprised what you'll be willing to do when the Lamia comes for you. Now Playing is a Venganza Media production, copyright 2013, all rights reserved, and no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Venganza Media Incorporated. <laughs> Three Evil Dead films. <clears throat> what the fuck is wrong with that? Are you going to vomit up a cat? Yeah. You did say choke on a bitch. <laughs> Are there flies buzzing around you right now? <laughs> One just came out of my mouth. Gypsy sisters and my big fat gypsy wedding. Like, the gypsy is that a thing, thing right I, I get, now? Oh, yeah. Is gypsies happening? I didn't know. La I didn't either. Go, go watch your TLC. <laughs> She's homeless? That that song's called Gypsy Woman. Oh, I didn't yeah. know that. Um, Obviously, you guys don't watch TLC. Just leave it with that. <laughs> I've seen Honey Boo Boo once. <laughs> I'm proud to leave my Honey Boo Boo's count at zero. <laughs> honey Boo Boo's when my wife stubs her toe. She's pizza. She's pizza. She certainly is broadly drawn. She is every bit, but she, what, what is that? that is I that. did that on purpose. <laughs> Just relax. Oh, that's the oh, fingers. Wait, she, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, she's I'm annoying. Sorry, <laughs> she's pizza. She's pizza.